Welcome to the Monocle Banking Podcast, a series brought to you by Monocle Solutions, where we've been balancing the books in the dynamic world of banking. Again, I'm your host, Michael Avery, and in this series, we've been exploring the evolving landscape of banking and financial services. It's great to be back where it all started, in the office with David Buckham, CEO of Monocle Solutions, where we kicked off the podcast. What was it? Six or seven weeks ago, David. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you, Michael. It's been a great success, this podcast. I absolutely love it. We're starting to create the kind of content that I think really needs to be out there and having those discussions. And it's the quality of the discussions is something that I've been wishing for and hoping for. Very glad to have you as the host. I've been listening avidly to all the episodes and learning a lot. Yeah, and I've been learning a lot as we go as well. That's the real privilege that I have of doing what I do, to be honest with you. The uh, quality of guests we've had so far, Professor Brian Kant, as we know, a real luminary, a doyen in the world of uh, banking and, mm. and finance, Anne Cabot-Alitzhauser, now at Gibbs, but she's also had a storied career talking about inequality and how sometimes the banks like to talk about financial inclusion, but sometimes don't hold the mirror up to themselves and the role that they're playing in maybe deepening intra-country inequality. And we had Anne Banchetti, the CEO. CFO of very ambitious CEO of Afri- African Bank last week. So we're building a yes. portfolio. We're building a momentum. And that's really when we sat down and we first discussed yes. our raison de trois. What we wanted to do yes. with this podcast, we said, uh, look at the landscape out there. No one's talking about these issues that intersect mm. finance, business, the political economy mm. in depth. And that's really what uh, I think we've started to do. And I look forward to continuing to do in Absolutely. the new year. Absolutely. Now, the one thing and uh, the one thing that really underpins banking and the, the last time we spoke about it and you emphasized this inherent risk in the banking sector, it's due to its reliance on public trust. And it's quite interesting that we've seen just recently comments that were made by cabinet ministers, by members of the ruling party, really eroding that public trust in our established banks on the back of this Competition Commission inquiry into Mm, mm. alleged brand manipulation by a bunch of traders, mostly in New York, manipulating a certain spot price for currency trades at a particular time in the day. Yet we've had utterances from cabinet ministers saying, this is proof that the banks are Mm. trying to collapse the South African economy. I mean, it's from my perspective, I've written a column about it. It's absolutely absurd that a bank that Mm. relies on stable growing economy would want to collapse it in the first place. And Mm. to my mind, it's just smacks of opportunism and electioneering. What, what were your thoughts when you heard these comments? Well, it's interesting. I recalled being on the trading floor in 2000 when the rand went quite suddenly from 13 rand to the pound to 20 rand to the pound and sort of everyone wondering what the heck had happened. And then it's spiking back down. And I don't know if you remember, but there was then an inquiry that went on and on. It was never actually finalized who had done it, but it looked like one big hedge fund had had manipulated it at that stage. So we're inquiries before, and with SCMB and the accusation, or the, not, not accusations, I mean, they've, they have been officially fined, there's no doubt in my mind that those fines are well-deserved, that they were manipulating the RAND, and the RAND is particularly 
prone to manipulation because it's not the most liquid of currencies, that currency pair, the US dollars are, but it's not the least liquid either. So it's of, it's, it's kind of in the middle where a couple of traders working together can manipulate it. And it's it's always been prone mm-hmm. to manipulation, more so than, for example, the USD GBP. To blame RAND manipulation on the state of our economy is, you know, obviously absurd and disingenuous. Um, and I think it's a further demonstration of this long dance that we have in South Africa and in the U.S. actually between government and the banks. So post the financial crisis, out comes the Dodd-Frank Act. There's this kind of bilateral anti-bank sentiment, anti-Wall Street sentiment. And then that's whittled down to, you know, well, Dodd-Frank was 2,000 pages but made no sense at all. It was just cobbled together. And there's a kind of a lack of careful thinking that goes on when these regulations come out. And it's a response of government promising to crack down on Wall Street. And then you get the lobbying afterwards and the the rules get whittled down. Also, to create rules that are counterproductive to the economy. Yeah, And I would say it's particularly ironic and disingenuous of cabinet members in this country to criticize RAND manipulation in today, RAND manipulation, which in the greatest scheme of things is neither here nor there, to be quite honest. Those are bad actors. They should be fined. But we have, you know, some collapsing state infrastructure. We have gray listing as a direct result of the failure to prosecute money laundering You've had not one successful case in five years from the National Prosecuting Authority. You've had an impeached, you know, prosecutor, and you have uh, obvious electioneering. So I would argue with those people till the cows come home that, and and it's measurable. I can tell you what mm-hmm. the effect of RAND manipulation was versus the effect of let's say, the failure of ESCOM or the failure of Transnet. It's ironic that it comes out, and you mentioned those too, at a time when Ricardo Hausmann, the very well-respected Harvard development economist, published his paper alongside the Center for Development and Enterprise into their two years-long academic study into why the state is failing. Mm. And he lays the blame at ineffective and ill-conceived policymaking. And again, the utterances by the minister suggests a lack of understanding of what's going on in the forex market mm, and mm. it's a seven trillion dollar daily global market mm, of which mm. that czar USD exotic pair, it's not even a, a big pair, mm, is mm. a very small part. And then again, the impact is on mm. the customers primarily of those banks, mm. not on the broader economy. But he then lays the blame firmly at the the door of policies such as BE of cadre deployment that have been manipulated. And, mm. you know, I'm a, I'm a critic of BEE, not in its conception. I think mm. we needed mm. to do something to normalize the economy, but its spirit has since been shown to be mm. hijacked by mm. bad actors. Mm. And, mm. I, and I want to bring this back to this concept of bad actors, because very often, and in the book you touch on that, how policymaking in response to bad actors very often then tars the entire industry. 
mm. uh, to a point where the industry can barely move to the detriment of the broader economy. Uh, in the book, you outline stories around Nick Leeson, for example. And, yeah, uh, fascinating. You know, I mean, yeah. how he led to the collapse of Bering's Bank. Just take me through that story and how it highlights the significant impact that one individual bad actor can actually have on an yeah. overall financial institution. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, prior to Nick Leeson and prior to also the failure of LTCM, so Nick Leeson was the head trader at the Singapore branch of Bearings Bank, but he was also the head of middle office, which is really where your risk management function sits. So really kind of poor judgment to have the head of trading who's supposed to take risk and that same person being in charge of containing risk. And he was young, 25, 26, 27 years old, making 10% of Bearings Bank worldwide profit. Uh, so he, he was untouchable, and he was actually losing on trades and hiding the money away in this account called the triple eight double eight account, hiding the losses. And the stress was getting to him, and he decided to put together a trade called a straddle, which is about as risky as it gets. It's it's an option position trade where you buy, you sell call options and you sell put options with the same strike price, which basically in layman's terms means that on an underlying index, in this case it was the Nikkei 225, uh, which is the largest 225 stocks in Japan, yeah. um, you have a trade which depends on you collecting premiums from people who are betting the other side of the equation that, that the Nikkei will move either up or down. If, an, if the Nikkei moves up or down, you are going to lose and you've simply collected premiums. So he sold a lot of these, like 80,000 units of these option trades, um, which is enough to sink a bank. And then the very next day after taking this position, there was the Kobe earthquake, which was catastrophic, both you know to human life and to physical infrastructure and also to potentially nuclear power stations. But mostly it creates uncertainty. So what the markets do when they're uncertain is they react with volatility. So the Nikkei sank and Bearings Bank, the oldest investment bank in the world at the time, was out of business. He then ran away, was arrested, did prison time, got out of prison early, he had cancer, recovered from cancer, and he's now on the lecture circuit teaching us about how, <laughs> how to be risk managed. But that's the problem, isn't it? Because in so many of these cases, you've got these individual bad actors mm. uh, causing immense damage, suffering you know, losses mm. that extend not in just to financial losses, but human suffering when institutions close down, people lose their jobs, trust is eroded in these institutions, but they're not held fully accountable for their actions receiving very often slaps on the wrist, relatively mm. lenient penalties, ending up on speaking circuits. How do you think the financial industry can implement stronger measures here to ensure that individuals who engage in these actions are properly held to account and face pro mm. appropriate mm. consequences? Because the upshot here is if we don't, we are eroding trust in these very same financial institutions who are so critical in maintaining especially Western liberal mm. democracy. If I could step back for a second and, first of all, reflect on the, the critique of the banking sector by cabinet members, this doesn't help anyone. So this is the first problem. 
which is to say that the banking sector is absolutely essential in providing capital and liquidity to the body economic. And we know that its main borrower at the moment is actually government. So there's something deeply ironic about criticizing your main funding mechanism. And it just goes to electioneering and stupidity. And there should there should be more courage in the bankers to kind of go, come on, that's a ridiculous statement. And maybe more kind of more more bravery in responding to, to that politicking. That yeah. would be my first point because there's a big difference between blaming the entire financial sector versus uh, how do I prosecute particular individuals like a Nick Leeson. That would be my first point is that we need a much stronger response from the banks to these accusations, which are, are nonsensible and, and are not helpful. They lead people to distrust the banking sector, which does not help anybody. It simply creates greater distrust and chaos. That's the first point. The second is that typically um, bad actors at banks have not been successfully prosecuted. So Nick Leeson is actually an exception. Tom Hayes, who was found guilty of manipulating LIBOR, got a 14-year sentence, which is the longest, most significant sentence that any individual bad actor has got in the entire history of financial services, mm-hmm. you know, last 30 years. That could be finally broken by a lifetime sentence for Sam Bankman-Fried, hopefully. But he is actually outside of what I call the formal banking sector. He's He's obviously on the... He's on the other side. You couldn't have had a more nominatively deterministically ironic name than (laughs) Sam Bankman-Fried, who might uh, potentially be Sam Bankman jailed for life, uh, given what he did with FTX. Yes, yes, yes. Very, very good example of how incredibly stupid uh, the world got uh, during the massive transitory narrative money supply year of 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 2021 i'd say 2021 will go down in history as probably the dumbest year in history oh so you lost money on your your jpeg ape shape how could you not have foreseen that happening yeah exactly exactly (laughs) all of that that year just fought against that but to go back to your question you see there's a problem michael if i say to the new ceo of nedbank for example that you must take on personal liability to the extent that you could be sent to prison for life for things that happen within your bank that you may not have control over. I'm not going to, as a CEO, want that job. You know, yeah. there, there, are, there are certain things that you cannot be held accountable for. So a very good example is Dick Fuld, who was at the helm of Lehman. So Lehman used a technique called Repo 105, which should be outright fraud. It's, it's definitely financial manipulation at its worst to, to manipulate what shareholders and what investors and analysts and what the general public see. So the question then becomes is, should Dick Fould go to prison? And the answer could be, well, he could plausibly deny that he knew about it. This has been one of the arguments that's made. So what the DOJ has tended to do, the Department of Justice has tended to do, particularly during the Obama years, Obama was using bank fines that were levied by the DOJ against multiple banks. We actually at Monocle have done a major study of bank fines over time, and they were particularly prevalent during the Obama years, to 
punish banks, but also to fund programs that he couldn't get through Congress because of the deep divide in the American Congress, so social programs that Obama believed in. So you've got bad actors who are plausibly denying, plausible deniability. There was the guy from Orange County, for example, whose defense claim, you know, he lost Orange County over a billion dollars. So what had happened is an investment bank had sold him a product which he which lost a lot of money, over a billion dollars. Orange County's in California. And Robert Citron, his defense was that he was very stupid. And they did like a maths test for him to prove that his mathematical capabilities were very poor. So you've got a kind of song and dance between, I can't take accountability because I'm stupid. I didn't know, right? That's the CEO's position. At the same time, if you load up the risk on the, on the CEO as an individual, you won't get anyone working in that position. Yeah, or certainly not the caliber of individual that you need. That you want. And then on the other hand, if you're just fining the firms these incredibly large sums of money, you know, billions upon billions, we're talking $10 billion fines, which were actually ways for Obama to fund programs that were not authorized by Congress. I mean, there's a whole study that's been done on, on that. Very politicized way of using the DOJ. Um, so the long, like, the long answer, let, let me shorten my answer. There should be some kind of sensible um, set of rules that if you break, individuals do get prosecuted. Individuals who, for example, those traders who manipulated should go to prison. Right. They're not going to prison. Um, well, often what happens is you see, rather than going to trial, there's a fine, there's an correct. admission of some kind of, not guilt, so much as paying over a fine, the yes. case goes away, it doesn't go to public trial, the individuals slink off into the distance, as per these traders who are apparently no longer in the ploy yes. of, of Standard Chartered Bank. But yes. you know, it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy a need to have accountability to change behavior to ensure that we start to root this out of the system. Yeah, exactly. So I think there should be some kind of agreement between government and business that, sure, we can, we can pay the fine, but there's unholy incentive sometimes to fine because those monies are then diverted elsewhere. If you look at how the DOJ money was used, yeah. they were used on programs that were not approved by Congress. Sure, some of those programs were, were good programs. On that point here in South Africa, I mean, would you be an advocate of if those fines were ring-fenced specifically to fund the NPA in its prosecutorial well, that, efforts for state capture, for example? Yes. Because it seems ridiculous yes. that we spend more yes. as a line item in the budget on VIP protection services yes. that we do to fund the NPA. No, 100%. I mean, the NPA, there was a recent article in Business Day last week which which made the point. I sort of I remember looking up from reading the paper. I was on an aeroplane and kind of looking around me to see if if I was still living in reality, like the NPA has not had one successful case in five years. And they're arguing that they have insufficient resources. And they have to subvert resources from other departments. And in the same in the same newspaper was an article about the SJC wanting to strike off the role two two justices. And the one dissenting voice was Busisiwe Mkabane, who, as we know, was impeached and you kind of look at this and you go, okay, so we're grey-listed, which are, it's going to have a long-term drag effect on the South African economy. 
and told Dragon Effect, it's unlikely that we're not like Mauritius. We're not going to get off the grey list until we start prosecuting and sending people to prison. Yeah, yeah. We can't prosecute successfully because we don't have enough resources. So I would definitely propose or agree to or propagate or support or in any way argue positively for a situation in which you ring-fenced bank fines, right, for the purpose of supporting the NPA. It would be difficult to do so, you could argue, constitutionally. You'd have to... You'd have to get a lot of people on your side across the aisle, but it would make a lot of sense. But it's these kinds of propositions that need to be made actually by the banks. We would need a more angry banking fraternity. And I also want to make, sorry, one more point is that, yes, of course, I sound biased maybe, but banking in South Africa is pretty good. We haven't had wild traders we, don't, we haven't had gross manipulation. A lot of the RAND manipulation has taken place offshore. Inside of South Africa, there are not that many bad actors. There, I mean, there's a few nasty little banks like VBS, as we know. Yeah. But the, big, the bigger banks are pretty clean, I, I would argue. Yeah. So, I mean, we've had one major bad actor, Greg Blank, that I can recall of in the right. last and three decades, yes. for example. Yes. And I mean, again, I'm certainly no praising for the banks here, but just if you look at where our strengths lie, where we're mm. continually ranked very highly, it's within the sophistication of our financial mm. markets, the strength, the governance, all of those things. I think just to wrap up on this point then, David, you'd obviously like to see the banks being a bit more vocal. We did see Sim Shabalala write an op-ed the weekend mm. saying that while he you know, he was frustrated at the tone, and I think obviously he had to be fairly diplomatic in mm. his language, mm. he still said it gave him some sucker that competition tribunal case which is being heard at least shows that the true and and verifiable factual positions can be put on the table mm. and and that the case of the competition commission is actually on legal grounds very thin and our, our mm. judicial system still works so i mean that gave him some confidence but you could just sense the tone was of one of deep mm. sadness and and frustration but at least we have a bank ceo standing up and speaking out. And I 100%. think we haven't had enough of that in the past. A hundred percent. We need more of that. I think what happened is that there was a good relationship until the Guptas. And then there were internal factions within the ANC that were not happy with the closing of the Gupta accounts. And this, the state co-opted banks into running surveillance. Um, and then it went to the Zondo Commission, which went on for three years, and then no one got prosecuted. Yeah. Not quite true. I mean, obviously, Zuma got prosecuted, but we know how that ended. So I think there's a little bit of to and fro that's been gone from a niggle to, to now quite serious. What I do find quite gratifying is that the South African Reserve Bank itself has behaved admirably compared, for example, to other countries like Argentina or Turkey. Just as two examples, (laughs) two obvious examples. What did they have to increase interest rates to in Turkey recently? Or they upped them by a ridiculous amount just to try and rein in inflation where they are at the moment. We've got Millet in Argentina who's who's trying to restore some semblance of economic credibility. But let's let's pivot, if we can, slightly to to cryptocurrencies. Because when you talk of 
bad actors. When you talk of a loss of faith in the in the banking arteries that mm. direct the body economic, uh, often the argument is put forward by advocates of cryptocurrencies that, look, central banks have failed. Mm. We don't trust fiat currencies anymore. We don't trust central banks that mm. t- to manipulate their currencies mm. at a whim. Look at these rogue traders in the RAND. For, look, it's another example of why you have to have this immutable, mm. decentralized, distributed ledger mm. as a way to transact and build this new trustless, mm. dis, you know, it's almost a dystopian, anarchic mm. society. Mm. But in the book, in light of Friedrich Hayek's assertion, which you touch on in the book, that econ- economists, by and large, have made a mess of things. So that was really his Austrian view. Mm. How do you view the state of the global economy currently and the role of cryptocurrencies in it? Michael, I get asked this particular question quite a lot, and I'm, I'm quite well known to be vocally anti cryptocurrency to the extent that I'm asked to stand on stage and sort of publicly debate it. I recently, last year at a Stanlib conference, and a Liberty conference, um, and I really feel quite passionately about it. So, so let, me, let me go back and sort of demystify a, a couple of points. The first point would be that we, all of us, suffer from this general attitude of complaint about services like the police, you know, we might argue, well, you know, it's obvious to everyone that the police are corrupt. I would say that that may be your vocal sentiment as you're sitting in your car because you're frustrated that there's a queue because they're checking for fines. But in general, I would rather live in a world in which there are police to call upon. I mean, even in South Africa, I would rather, at the end of the day, get the police to come to my house to protect me on top of the security personnel that we all hire in South Africa. It's become an entire industry. But at the end of the day, even in South Africa, even with everything that's happened, I would still say when it comes down to it, 99 out of 100 people would choose to have the police, even though they say that they're... So now think of money in the same sense. You know, when someone's climbing over your wall, who are you going to call? Your, your security firm or the police or both? They're usually connected. When it comes to money and we start talking about, well, obviously we can't trust the banks. Obviously, you know, the banks are corrupt. And it doesn't help when you have cabinet ministers feeding into that narrative. And we're celebrating cryptocurrency. We're talking about something that is... Uh, not really a currency, it's an asset that you can buy, which calls itself a currency, which you're able to trade. You, you can buy money, you can, you can buy cryptocurrency with real money, and then you supposedly can buy other things with cryptocurrency. What you can mostly buy, and studies have shown this and I can prove it, mostly like 99 point something percent of all transactions, 99.99%, of all crypto transactions are to buy other kinds of crypto. So it's like once you've taken real money, your dollars or czar, and got your crypto wallet, you're now buying cryptocurrency. People now are loving this idea of decentralization. And what they're doing inadvertently is they're philosophically buying into a narrative, which is to say that they believe in, they don't, trust government, they don't trust the banking system, and they this decentralized finance is, is the way to go. 
What they really are driven by mainly is the gambling instinct. So it's been proved, it's been shown, studies have shown that during times of crisis, and particularly during the COVID era, there has been a massive increase in gambling. In fact, some of the South African banks have reported that they see gambling numbers go up. And there's often, it's a precursor to loan loss provisions going up. So crypto, the the value of crypto going up recently by 50%, particularly Bitcoin, is often used. People say to me, well, look at that, David. Clearly, you are wrong. And for me, that's just a sign that there's, again, too much heat in the market because we've Mm -hmm. seen that with the NASDAQ as well. If you look at, Let's let's strip it out then. Cryptocurrency as a means of trade versus crypto assets as a digital store of value, for example, that can go up and down and people take a punt on. And I've seen some fascinating research into the Mm. correlation between the momentum and volume of money supply, M1, M2, M3 money supply, and the rise in and decline of crypto assets. And, you know, when the US yeah. Fed was printing money, added like 25% yeah, yeah. new money in the one year, cryptos went through the roof. Yeah. Then you saw that liquidity being withdrawn from yeah. the market, cryptos crashed. And again, the market seems to be preempting the Fed having to cut interest rates next yeah. year. And so we see, so that's fine. You've got something digitally that you can you can trade like, like an asset. But when it comes to using this as currency, you just talk to me about whether or not that's an efficient use of resources to, to trade. You know, if you look at the energy consumed, for example, to verify one transaction yeah. or, or mine a particular Bitcoin. Yeah. So what a, what a lot of people don't understand, and I'm, I'm really glad, Michael, to have this opportunity to explain it, is what is actually taking place when you do a cryptocurrency transaction. So let's say that you're using Bitcoin to buy Ethereum or you're using Bitcoin to buy a car. The same thing's got to happen, which is that you need someone to record that that money was used. So because you don't trust anybody, there's no central way of recording that. You actually have to have authentication. But how do you do that if you don't have a centralized uh, system of trust in money? So what they have is the blockchain technology, which is often celebrated as this kind of really meaningful technology. But let me explain how that works. What a block is, it's a block of data, which is of recent transactions that's added to the chain, which is to say the ledger, the public ledger. So the ledger sits in some kind of space, let's call it, you know, in some server somewhere, and That ledger is a record that cannot, in theory, be retrospectively altered. So it records transactions. Those transactions are recorded for the sake of efficiency because it's a very inefficient way to record transactions in the following way as blocks of data. And those blocks are enshrouded with a cryptographic function problem, which is then distributed to miners around the world to authenticate that transaction by having a race to see who can solve the prime function problem, which is very, very, it's a brute force problem. It cannot be solved analytically, and it consumes a whole lot of computer power to do so, to which the answer is already known, by the way. So now you've got to authenticate a transaction. You have thousands of miners around the world using something called proof of work, which is to say, 
that because there's so much consensus on what the answers are, then you can now enshroud that block and you put that block onto the chain and off you go with the next block. And that's what blockchain actually is. Mm. So a couple of problems with that. The first is that um, it's very prone to abuse. The miners can speak to each other. They can cheat. They can undermine the process. They can hack. It's happened multiple times, many, many, many times. It's not safe at all. Anyone who says that it's safe is lying. It's repeatedly hacked, repeatedly that blockchains get hacked. That's the first problem. The second is it's incredibly inefficient. You've got thousands of people using their computers to solve a 100-digit prime, prime number problem, uh, which is unsolvable except using proof of work. Um, you actually have to show your CPU usage to participate. It's so stupid. So then they come up with a new idea, which is called proof of stake, in which miners and miners kind of get together online. You're calling, these are like techies, you know. Yeah. They get together and they've got their computers running with servers. This is what Solano is trying to work on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they get together and they do something called proof of stake, which is they say, okay, well, we'll put down a deposit, right? And whoever puts down the largest deposit uh, gets to run the authentication. So you've got fewer, not burning as much energy, but you know, you, you'll have people putting down Bitcoin so that they can earn the Bitcoin because that's the incentive. If you're the first to authenticate the block, to add it to the blockchain, you get like a piece of Bitcoin. Yeah. So now let's just think about what you've just done. You've just created an incentive which says if you're wealthy and you already have Bitcoin, then you're more likely to be able to participate in the proof-of-stake game to have more Bitcoin. So if I saw a strategy to create greater inequality before, I I don't think I've seen something that's so blatantly unfair. And then there's a greater problem, Michael, a much greater problem with crypto, which is what I call the proliferation of variety. Yeah. And back to Hayek, he thought that the market would sort itself out and actually reduce the number of independent currencies that we had to trade with and in. And we've seen the exact opposite with Bitcoin. Yeah. We've seen yeah. dogs, for example, Dogecoin. Yeah, Elon yeah, Musk. yeah. yeah. There's, there's, it's really interesting why Hayek got that wrong. I'm often pondered on whether he was too conceptual or, you know. So he was arguing in the 70s, just for the listener, yeah. that our system of monetary exchange did not need to be centralized by governments and that it would be better to have it not in the hands of countries or of sovereignties, but rather in the hands of private companies. And that over time, certain private companies would simply be better at it than others. And then everything would fall into place and we'd have the best monetary system, which would be owned by by industry, by private enterprise. This, in my view, is fundamentally bad thinking. And I know he's a famous guy. But if you think about the argument is that a couple of big players will come to dominate, we're talking about antitrust. We're talking about the railways at the turn of the century. We're talking about the J.P. Morgans, we're talking about um, the Guggenheims, we're talking about, in the modern day, the dominance of Apple, the dominance of Google, these super, super billionaires 
that are going to change the world. So now we don't any longer have like government, you know, being elected officials choosing uh, how to go. So I would say Hayek's thinking was fundamentally wrong, but then it's also been proven wrong. Yeah, there's over ten thousand varietals of of crypto. There's there's thousands of blockchains. The combination between cryptos and blockchains has kind of proven the chaos. If there was one or two that were dominant, I would also worry because they would possibly charge fees or they'd possibly be unfair. Which brings us back to the question of, well, how is that not the same as the US dollar dominance? And that really is the fundamental question of why banks fail, which is how did how how did the US do how did the Federal Reserve, which is the in charge of the U.S. dollar, which is the reserve currency of the world, how did it fare since the Nixon shock? And the answer is they're screwing up. They're not doing it right. They're making mistakes, and they're making big mistakes. And and that I think segues beautifully, David, into our concluding podcast of the year, where you know having discussed all of these issues, we're going to tie them together with just some of the conclusions, some of the solutions that you put forward in the book for the Fed, amongst others, to try and solve for those mistakes and missteps that they've made so we can start to rebuild a system that is far more fit for purpose for modern times. David Buckham, thank you very much, as always, CEO of Monocle Solutions, for being on the Monocle Banking Podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's a wrap for this week's episode. Before we go again, we'd like to extend our gratitude to you, the listener, for giving us the likes and subscribes. Keep on doing it, and we'll keep on bringing you this great content. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, don't forget to subscribe to the channel.